Uh, welcome to episode one of Insights, a uh, podcast by Elite Admit. Uh, we're the number one admissions consulting firm in Southeast Asia, and we will be talking about uh, all things related to uh, graduate degrees, uh, but also just professionalism in general, different industries, uh, global issues, uh, things like that. And we are starting off episode one uh, with Mim uh, from Agoda, and I'll have her introduce herself momentarily. And I am Dane Phillips, uh, the founder and CEO of Elite Admin. Uh, so, Mim, thank you for joining us. Please introduce yourself. Great. Thank you so much, Dane. Uh, well, hello. My name is Mim. My full name is Prawi Nondapan. I am from Thailand, born and raised here. Uh, I currently work at Agoda as a senior project manager. Before Agoda, well, I've been with Agoda for two years now. Before that, I was, a, uh, I was doing my MBA in the States at Kellogg. Uh, for two years, I did work with some startups and VC. Before that, I was doing my family business, was also a human capital consultant. In my spare time, I do chef's table. And in my even more spare time, I do stand-up comedy, but I don't do that as much now. <laughs> I remember you were doing that at Kellogg. Uh, that was very cool. And I remembered Mim's table, but I had forgotten about the stand-up. That's awesome. Um, and we have human capital consulting in common. So obviously, that's what uh, we do for a living. Uh, it's the development. But you were at uh, Aon Hewitt, right? So a uh, little bit of a different angle, but I think uh, the same means to the end. I agree. I agree. Now, actually, Aon Hewitt got bought out by okay. Stuart company and now it's called Kincentric. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it, it changed its name over the past six years I've been away, but uh, still the same same people, same work. And uh, I think that's how we bonded, right, Dane? We were talking a lot about human capital consulting outside right. of like, our regular conversations. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, and I think that's still uh, kind of the interest there is just how are you constantly uh, developing yourself, helping develop the people around you? Uh, I know we both have the ambition to help other people succeed. You serve as a mentor uh, to people. You were an interviewer at Kellogg, uh, which I think is really uh, cool that you've been on both sides of the table now. So obviously you went through uh, the admissions process and, and had to go through uh, interview preparation and then the interview itself. Uh, and then after you graduated, you paid that back to the school uh, by serving uh, as an interviewer. Uh, so you've seen the full life cycle, I guess, of the MBA process. Yeah, I've seen the whole lava to butterfly kind of deal. <laughs> now, now I'm not doing any more interview because you know of my actual work. Uh, it's too intense, so I can't take up. But I am still helping people out, and I hope to go back to interviewing people again. Uh, it's a lot of fun getting to know folks who's who's going for an MBA. Great. Glad to hear that. And I think the one thing I think people should definitely take away from that is you talked about what an investment of time it is. I think people think that it's just those five minutes or 30 minutes that they go in and talk to you or whatever, uh, and that it's a, a small investment. And so it's this, it's this huge deal to them and that perhaps the person uh, from the school is not as invested. And of course, that's not the case. I know that you prepare for the interview itself, you conduct the interview, and then take a lot of time and a lot of thought uh, to write that. Uh, I guess they call it an evaluation, but it's ultimately a, a, an extra letter of recommendation to say, this is a great candidate, or these are some flaws or, or whatever you might have to say. Yeah, it takes us a lot of time. It's a lot of words. They have a, well, they don't have a 
maximum count, but like here's the preferred number of words you write about a candidate. So please do. And, and for me, it's very important to to recommend the ones that would fit the school and then make sure the people who don't fit find a better place. Um, just, you know, I, I really care how the community is going to be built, what kind of people I want to have as within my network. So I spend a lot of time on it. No, I mean, I think it's a, a huge investment and definitely, uh, I, as you pointed out, uh, there's this sense of duty uh, to the program itself and, and to everybody involved, whether that's the current applicants or uh, past uh, al alumni uh, such as yourself. But I think what's what's cool about it is that even if somebody's not a good fit, uh, saying that they're not a good fit is is not a bad thing because what you're doing is you're opening up a spot for somebody else who is a good fit. And maybe they got interviewed by, by someone else, but you're ultimately just making sure that the best people and the right people f end up at the right program. And, and I think that's a, a fantastic outcome. Well, uh, we did have some questions uh, I wanted to ask. I'm very interested in your side of things. Obviously, I've always been on a, a certain side of uh, the admissions process. So mm -hmm. uh, I do want to hear uh, about you a little bit more. And obviously, you and I have been friends for a long time, and, and I do know you well, but I don't know everything. So here's some stuff that I have wanted to know. So um, as I recall, you were considering the one-year MBA, um, but then you ultimately decided on the two-year. You obviously decided on Kellogg specifically, even though you did have other offers. Um, was two years the right decision for you? And for others, if they're you know wondering whether it should be that one-year or two-year option, what are the things they should consider when making that decision? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good question. So for me, when when I was applying for schools, I was erring on the side of, of two years. Um, but given the score at the time before it shot up right after round two, <laughs> I, I, I decided to go for one year Kellogg. And um, of course, I got admitted with other schools, which has two years. And I wasn't I was dead set on going to Kellogg just because I went to the school. I see how it was compared to other open houses. And, and the reason I chose two year over one year and risked that little extra ask to Kellogg was because I, I knew what I want. I wanted to experience life outside of Thailand. And mm. I had an experience before living in Japan for a year that really allowed me to grow and experience uh, things uh, alone. And then I can talk more about that in terms of when you're Thai, you're born and raised, you live with your parents, your independence is kind of there and also not there, but the, the independence that you can find is when you live alone. And living alone for two years, for me, that was the reason I went for two years, which I think if you listen to other people that say, oh, I want to do a career switch, I want to do uh, I want a two-year break because I'm super burnt out for five years working for consultants, working for Deloitte, uh, for me, I mine was way more fundamental than that. I just want independence. And for, for people who would want to go for one year, I think the important thing they can consider is how fast do they want to go back to work? Right. And, and an, an MBA is a two-year break, even though when you're doing your MBA, you don't feel like it's a break. But <laughs> once you have that little break and you go back to work, you realize it is a break. It's almost as if a, a prelude to how your retirement would look like. Interesting. So to me, it's that because it's, 
it's low it's it's low stakes. It's so low stakes. You get into a good MBA, you know you're gonna get a good job. If you're not picky, you can go work for a co-plant and be a VP and get a ton of cash. But <laughs> right. You work in a co-plant, but essentially it's it's a prelude to your retirement. And for me, I want to experience it as much as possible. So I know one, I, I know what independence feels like, I know how I can grow. And number two, I can plan for my actual retirement. That's really interesting. I never looked at it that way, although I, I, in the same way, I guess if I was retired, I would still want to go to cool classes and listen to amazing professors and learn all this great stuff. So, uh, yeah, there are definitely worse ways to spend retirement. Yeah, like every single time, like someone asked me, first year asked me or someone like in their MBA, like, oh, what should what should I do during my MBA other than do classes, do networking, interview for, for work? I just tell them like, uh, it's it's your time to reflect on what you want as your retirement and what you want to do after school. There's no next steps for this at all. This, so, so find a hobby. Or- well, it depends definitely what you came out of. You mentioned uh, coming out of uh, consulting or definitely investment bankers. I mean, they're so burned out. Um, and actually, now that you have work from home, I see it in everybody. I mean, those 90-hour weeks that used to be just IB, but now everybody's putting in 90 hour weeks. Everybody's exhausted. So uh, it really is uh, a, an important break. It's an important time for reflection that you don't have during your career. Uh, but as you pointed out, you get to you get to find all these hobbies. Schools like Kellogg have quest trips and, and really encourage you to do more than just the classes. But I think when you're an undergrad, it's exhausting and it's hard and there's a lot of pressure. But you know that there's when you do get that first job, that there's still that master's break coming. But after an MBA, there's there's nothing left. It's just work for the rest of your life. Uh, so uh, I think you're absolutely right. You do need to make the most of the experience itself. And, and um, there are some people that miss out on that. But I think, uh, definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but Kellogg does it better than a lot of schools. I, at least the people I know there. Uh, they travel well. Uh, they, I, I see more fo- travel photos from Kellogg students than anybody else. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> wow, how are you somewhere other than school always? Uh, but yeah, I mean, people are just really active. They're uh, really uh, sociable. They're really engaged uh, in in things outside of the classroom, as you mentioned. Do you, does that happen organically, or does the school really push you to do that? It it actually happens organically. You 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 go to Kellogg and then there's there's like on the first day like they would tell you there will be this month there will be this there'll be that prepare for this buy costumes get like five types because you're gonna use it for all the parties people are so you you have packages like boxes that the, the second year will sell you of all the costumes <laughs> that they have and it passes along I'm not sure if it's the same for other schools but Kellogg right. takes things. For the social part, very seriously, and, and yeah, I I didn't know that other schools didn't have because I expected all MBAs to be social full. Like we will all wear silly costumes and and go on trips. It seems like a, a thing, but I'm not sure. Well, um, and I think that's another uh, point to make is that you got you get to decide who your network is, and and obviously MBA uh, at Kellogg is such a great community, and you do have. Uh, a fair number of ties. I mean, you'll have anywhere from six to 10 ties in a, in a, in a year, right? So you have a pretty good, 
right. You have a pretty good Thai network already. And then, of course, you meet a lot of cool people from all over the world. But if you're at a place where there's only one or two ties, if you're at, you know, Booth or Berkeley or something like that, uh, you're not necessarily going to have that same network. Um, and maybe the focus is going to be different. Um, I think, for example, people at Wharton are it's from day one. It's really about that internship and it's about what am I going to do and how am I going to get there? And um, maybe if you're at Columbia, it's about getting that finance job that everybody wants. And uh, so I think the communities are very different. Uh, but at the same time, you can extend your community because you're going to meet a lot of people through the application process, right? It's a very collaborative process. You're going to meet other applicants and other people and you end up at different schools, but hopefully maintain that contact. Uh, obviously, you had a good enough uh, uh, connection at Kellogg uh, that maybe you weren't talking to people at, at other programs as much, uh, but I think they're, they would probably have uh, pretty different experiences and uh, interesting to, to hear how different that experience might be. In fact, that's a good question for you. Uh, you were very close to going to a two-year, you were sold on a two-year MBA, as I recall. Very yeah. good school, number 16. And you actually went and visited, right? Yep. And yep. we're sure the, before you got there that that's where you wanted to go. And then afterward, that it was not. Um, do you know people that went to that program that year? Do you, can you picture what that other version of your life is like if you had gone there? I would be way happier because you don't. I won't get seasonal depression. Like nobody talks about how Kellogg just does not have the sun. So you don't like the cold. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's one part. Yeah, I was that set on going to that school versus Kellogg because because it was a two year program. But I went to visit that school and then I went to visit Kellogg. And for some reason, the people I talked to. I felt I connected more with the folks at Kellogg, and hence I chose school. Um, it, it was really weird. Like I was so dead set on on two years, and I was like, "Fine, I'll just do one year." But I know Kellogg's the place. The weather's nice. I was strict. I was strict on the weather. Wrong time of year. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong time of the year. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. It, it was the people, and and as I went through the MBA program, I talked to a lot of people, and everybody totally agreed that all MBAs are the same. Like when once you get through a certain rank, mm. they're all the same kind of folks. But but for me, I felt that I just connected more with the folks at Kellogg. Right. And and I the four or five people I met I met on like open house day. I'm still friends with them till today. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Well, it's great that they were there to help you make the decision that was right for you and. I think a wonderful thing to to take away from that that people often forget is it's nice to have options. Everybody wants to cut down their school list when they start the process. Everyone wants to decide in June, I only want these four schools. But uh, you didn't know where you wanted to go to school until you were visiting after acceptance. You know what I mean? It really does sometimes take, okay, I got three or four options. I'm talking to different people. Now it's real. I'm doing these visits. I'm looking at scholarship offers or money or cost of living or weather. Uh, I mean, all of this stuff matters. Uh, and, you know, people always talk about the pipeline, the internships. Am I going to be able to get a job in tech or consulting or whatever it may be? But there's just so many other considerations. Um, and I think the best thing you can do for yourself is get into a, several schools, then see what your options are, and then make an informed decision, which is exactly what you got to do. I 
I 100% agree. You you can imagine what it's like to get in, but it's a whole different story when you actually get that letter and talk right. to people. Right. Uh, and and they think a lot of people don't realize that because well, you can't you can't understand that until you get the the offer and then you're like, "Ah, oh, damn it, I should have applied to 10 other schools." And then you're <laughs> like, "Oh god." Um right. yeah. So it, it, it's true, it's true. You just need to have options and play with your options. Life is about that. And it's, I think it's a, an opportunity to have options. Like just never close yourself off, I think. That would be That's what I tell people. Uh, don't close doors in June. Uh, if you want to close them in April after you get accepted, knock yourself out. Uh, that's when you close doors. But get that acceptance. Uh, and I think people also forget, if you get a scholarship offer from number 15, you can take that to number 10. And say, hey, look, you know, uh, so even if you didn't want to go to number 15, it can still help. Uh, you got that interview experience. You got that offer. Then it feels good to get that email or that phone call. Right. And then you potentially could use it as a, a negotiating uh, tactic as well. Um, or I always tell Thai people, especially if you're going to end up at a school that maybe isn't as famous in Thailand, but is a fantastic school. Um, so uh, Michigan Ross comes into my uh, comes to mind. It's a top 10, great pipeline to tech. I see amazing people come out of Ross all the time, but it's a state school. It's not an M7. So maybe it doesn't have that, uh, that resonance with some people. So apply to Oxford and Cambridge, get in, even though it's lower, they're lower ranked than Ross. Uh, but you get to tell everyone that you got into Oxford or Cambridge. Your parents get to tell everyone that you got into Oxford or Cambridge. And you remember, and I wonder, can you remember how stressful it was? Every time you took the GMAT, your friends are asking you, what did you get? What did you get? What did you get? You get tired of even telling them you're going to take the test. And then when interview invites come out, did you get an invitation? Did you get an invitation? Uh, did you get accepted? I mean, there is a ton of social pressure in Thailand surrounding the MBA experience. Uh, and the more schools you apply to, I think the more you can at least diminish some of that pressure. Uh, does that seem like a long time ago? Can you remember that? Feel that? Yeah, I don't remember that. And I, I, I was one of those people who like, okay, I'll just apply to five schools. That's it. And in hindsight, I'm like, God damn it, I should apply to Cambridge and Oxford. Probably gonna right? turn, I'm gonna turn it down. My parents gonna use that as like. <laughs> right. I think it will tell everybody, yeah, my, my kid got to Cambridge and Oxford and she didn't go and got to a better school. It's, I mean, it's they big. can say that. It really is. It's such a big deal because uh, not everybody has heard of Kellogg, you know, um, or Northwestern or um, so uh, it does simplify the conversation uh, because you can make the decision that's right for you. Uh, you know what I mean? So, uh, and it can work in any direction. Oxford and Cambridge are obviously fantastic schools. They're fantastic uh, schools, but every time people are like, yeah, imagine you got it and you get to reject them. It's like, yeah. Right. Um, great school. They're great people. Great alumni network. I yeah. know so many people going to Oxford and Cambridge. They're amazing people. Yeah. It is a one-year MBA, as you pointed out, though. So it is a different experience. And so, again, that's something else to consider. So, yeah. Uh, are you going to have that internship? Are you going to have that opportunity for extracurriculars? Are you going to get to wear as many costumes or whatever you were talking about? So, yeah, um, I, I think it's important to kind of consider all those things. But as you said, they're not real until you get accepted. So you got to keep those doors open and, and then make that decision. All right, great. Well, cool. That was a much longer. I know I asked like nine probing questions, but uh, very interested in your answer. Uh, 
Okay, so we're supposed to go back and forth. What do you got for me? So, so this is like the question that has been going on my mind for such a long time, ever since mm -hmm. I started the MBA process, the admissions and everything. Uh, there's the thing about scholarship and scholarship from from companies in Thailand, and I always wonder whether it works. So my question to you is, since you also consult for actual companies, uh, at what point should a company start thinking about a scholarship program? Uh, is it actually successful? And who should be joining them? It is a very difficult first question. Thank you so much, especially since you pointed out I work for those companies, so that uh, you know uh, impacts my ability to be uh, totally transparent. Uh, but no, I mean I, I, I do my best. It's, I I am very candid with everybody I talk to, including those companies, and telling them this is this is what you need to do. This is the right way. Or uh, for example, uh, the companies themselves, they're worried about their return on investment. They're worried about people staying past their bond or even during their bond and not buying their way out. Uh, so the, the companies do have very serious concerns about the program and justifiably so. It's an 8 million baht investment. Um, so because you have to think about the fact that it's, it's not just the tuition, it's also the, uh, uh, the living expenses, the travel, uh, things like that. And they tend to pay for consulting. They tend to pay for test prep. So they are huge resources. Uh, so if you're trying to decide as a company whether you want to do it, you have to ask yourself if you want to pay eight million baht for an employee because you're not paying. That's not. That's like a twenty year bonus for a lot of the people that do scholarship programs, right? I mean, we're talking about the biggest. The biggest scholarship programs in in Thailand are like PTT, SEG. Uh, K Bank, uh, of course, we've worked with all of those scholars for 15, 16 years. Um, but uh, the issue with any of them is what is the ultimate goal? And is one graduate of an M7, whether that's Harvard, Stanford, you know, Wharton, MIT, Kellogg, Booth, uh, Columbia, is that worth 8 million baht? And how long are they going to stick around? And that's ultimately what they're trying to decide. So if you're considering a scholarship program, uh, I think you have to decide whether you want to develop people internally, uh, whether you're going to have an ecosystem that can develop them. Uh, and that could be a management trainee program, which is what most companies in Thailand do. And obviously, uh, much lower investment. But still, you're kind of wasting people for two years because they're just floating from department to department. Uh, but lower investment than a scholarship program itself. So I think you probably need to be one of the big companies like I just described in order for it to be worthwhile. Uh, McKinsey, Bain, BCG all have scholarship programs. Obviously, they have the money to do that. Um, but I, uh, Prime Street actually ended up having their first ever scholar maybe six or seven years ago. And that was a huge investment. Uh, you can imagine how amazing uh, that applicant must have been. Uh, so these are very, very expensive and, and important decisions for a company to make. Uh, I just think what they need to make simultaneously is the decision to support the scholarship program in other ways. It's not just about, okay, we're going to hire these amazing people. And we do re recruiting uh, as well. And we're, we're looking at school fit. At, at 21, we're looking at Thomas Hatt and Chula uh, grads and trying to decide, well, at 25, are they going to be able to get into uh, the schools we just named. I mean, uh, the scholarship programs, those big scholarship programs are really looking uh, at M7s almost exclusively. So 
very, very difficult to identify that in a 21-year-old who's never taken the GBAT. So uh, that's ultimately what our, our job is at that stage. But then we have several years to develop them. We do the seminars and, and the human capital consulting that I enjoy so much. And, and you do get to see these people grow and flourish. That is super important, that they hire the right people, that they spend years developing them, putting them in the right jobs, giving them an opportunity to succeed, uh, giving them leadership roles that they might not normally have. Uh, and making sure that they have the stories and the experiences uh, that are going to get them into those top MBAs. And then, of course, when they get back, they have to continue to groom them for fu- future executive positions. So they, they, they need an entire ecosystem that, that starts, yes, right as they come out of undergrad, um, but that they carry through. So it just really needs to be holistic. So that's a lot easier for, say, PTT or KBank, where they're hiring them at 21 versus say SEG, where you earn the scholarship after you've gotten there. Because maybe you only know you're a scholar for six months before you leave uh, versus uh, these other programs where they've known for three years, four years. Uh, So very different types of scholarship programs. In fact, KBank has both. So KBank has the general scholarship, uh, which I'm sure you've heard of. People get accepted and they're like, should I apply for the scholarship? Well, that's one type. Uh, then there's the Young Scholarship Program, which means you're still a senior in, in college uh, and you're deciding at that point if you want to be a scholar. So uh, so companies do have to think about the whole ecosystem. And then I think from the employee side, you have to decide, is this a place I want to work? Is this a place that's going to help me grow and help me flourish? I can tell you that the, the companies we work with do a fantastic job of that. Um, and so uh, they are very... Uh, ambitious. Uh, they're also uh, cooperative. Uh, so lots of really great conversations with executives about putting people in the right roles, as I pointed out, um, or putting them on special projects, even if it's only for six months, that's going to get them that exposure they need, get them that story they need and help them get into school. Um, but ultimately, it's about how much of your life do you want to dedicate to the company and to the MBA? So if you're hired straight out of undergrad and then you go work for three years uh, and then you go get an MBA and then you come back and you're bonded for another four to six years, that's a lot of your life uh, at one company, uh, but with a free MBA uh, to come out of it. Now, uh, MBBs, of course, the bond is shorter. It's half that. So most Thai companies, it's two years for every one year of education. Uh, For these global companies, it's one to one. Uh, But uh, but yeah, you just need to be mindful. And some sorry, there are some three to one uh, bonds as well. So you could have a six year bond for a two year degree. Uh, So a lot to think about on both sides of the equation. Uh, But I think regardless, you just really have to Whichever side you're on, do not think that an MBA is a solution to all of it. It has to be within the context of other learning and growing and development. You know what I mean? You need the work experience. You need uh, to be pushing yourself. You need to be reading the right books and listening to the right podcasts and and constantly trying to advance yourself pre-MBA and post-MBA because you never stop learning. You never stop developing. Uh, it's not like it's this magical thing that only happens during the two years you're you're at school, right? So, um, so yeah, I think scholarship programs are uh, a fantastic option. Uh, I love working with scholars. We make sure that uh, a, a large portion of our clients every year are scholars. 
because it's fantastic to work with people that that most likely could not have afforded to get an MBA on their own. And now they have this, this uncashed lottery ticket. And as a consultant, um, your job is to, to help them get that uh, and to, uh, to help them see how amazing they are and help them evaluate their own experiences and look at themselves from the outside in a way that maybe they haven't prior. Uh, but scholars are just, they're, yeah, they're fun to work with because it, like I said, it's just this opportunity that they thought they might never get. Um, and they make a nice, really balance uh, because, you know, we do group interview, right? So you do get to meet. You might have scholars along with MBBs, along with Forbes list, all in the same group. Uh, and that's great because that's a fantastic network. Everybody has something to offer. Everybody has something to learn. Uh, and so scholars uh, and scholarship programs, I think, fit into the Thai ecosystem really well. So I think Thailand's really fortunate to have companies that will invest that much in education. Um, your, your, your question of is it worth it uh, comes with a big qualifier of it depends. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I know I talked around the issue a good bit, but uh, it is absolutely worth it uh, when, when executed well. Um, it's just a matter of, can you execute it well? Can you get support, not just from HR, but from your executives, from the managers, from the mentors? Uh, are you going to be able to develop them pre-MBA and post-MBA? So I, I do think they're great, and I think they definitely should exist. Uh, but of course, they can always get better, which is something we try to help them do. Mm -hmm. I see. It's a... It's a very interesting way to to answer the question. From from what I'm hearing, it's that for companies, they need to balance on the fact that can they actually grow this person pre and post MBA, and then the actual applicant needs to ask themselves, do I want to spend the majority of my adult working life, my yeah. early working life with this company? It could possibly mean diminishing what their mind would change in the next, say, 10 years. Maybe right now they want to work for a bank. And you're standing online, nope, I want to sell online clothing. <laughs> right. right out of store. So so curious, when you said for K-Bank, they have the scholarship program where they grow young talent and then mm -hmm. the general scholarship program where anybody can apply assuming they got into a school. So which one is more successful? Like. I mean, it depends on what you mean for success, right? I mean, the fact is that, uh, right. Well, well, I mean, the young scholars have to go to, I mean, they technically they're only allowed to go to top fives. Uh, and again, you're hiring them at 21 with the limitation that they can only go to the top five best schools on the planet. It is insanely stressful. But what I can tell you is we have a hundred percent success rate. Um, in fact, I could say I have a hundred percent success rate overall. I've never had a client not get into school, um, so that's really important to me. Uh, but with most most of your clients, you have another lever, which is okay. Let's look at some other programs, right? You didn't get your GMAT. Let's maybe delay a year. Let's look at this. Let's uh, develop this uh, aspect of you. Maybe you should take the GRE or the executive assessment, or there are other tests you can take. There are other schools you can look at. When it's a scholarship program, all that stuff is locked. So you don't get to pull on that lever. All you can do is try to build that applicant and build that profile and build their skill set. Um, 
and and then of course on their end they're they're still trying to improve their test scores so uh it is very stressful and very difficult but is it successful in getting into school yes definitely um is it successful on roi uh it's hard to say uh i all the young scholars the program's only been around for I guess five or six years. So uh, the young scholars have all stayed because you know we're still in that time period, right? Uh, but the general scholarship program has been around for a lot longer, uh, and you know you don't have a hundred percent of people stay through their bond or stay after their bond. Um, you don't want people quitting on the day that their bond is up, right? Um, that that means that for the eight months before that, they already were checked out in their heads. So uh, so that is a concern, but. Uh, we have not seen that uh, as a as a major problem at KBank, uh, but there are other companies where it becomes a problem, and they do have to try to reevaluate uh, the exact same question you asked, which is, is it worth it? Um, and uh, and this is something we're constantly evaluating, reevaluating. But thus far, at least the programs we work with, and we do work with MBB scholars and, and stuff as well, but. Uh, Everybody we have worked with has succeeded not only in getting into an MBA, but building their careers and finding themselves in really challenging, exciting roles when they get back. So uh, I can't tell you that's everyone out there, uh, but the programs, we work with three of the largest programs in the country, uh, and those programs are doing really well. Interesting. So, so I guess when you answer it depends, it also depends on the company, their ability to retain top talent. because. When someone goes to a high-ranking school, a top five, they they become way more attractive before than than their pre pre MBA version. So yep. so I, I'm I'm always curious on on how companies are changing themselves to retain these talents because for me I see a benefit of retaining them because they can think differently, they can drive value. I right. say that with a bias because I, I am an MBA and I believe I am <laughs> the companies. Um, and and putting them in places where that their ideas can thrive and the company can can actually accept the change because I guess it comes with the risk. You can have a very smart person, and that smart person follow along the track that you want them to, and most smart people won't do that. They will have right. So 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 I'm curious how how do companies like face that fact? Well, I mean, obviously they've signed a contract, so yeah. that's the first thing. Um, because of course they are more valuable once they get the MBA, but keep in mind, the reason they got the MBA is because they were scholars, you know, they, they got to have the coolest jobs right after graduation. They didn't have to go through, they got to skip two levels or they got to do all the coolest stuff. Uh, when great assignments and great projects were getting handed out, they were the priority, um, and they get great support uh, from C-levels. I mean, they could get a letter of recommendation from the CEO, which you're not going to get if you're a, a regular employee. So yes, you are more valuable and you feel more valuable, but you have to remember where that value came from. So uh, it, would be, it would be disingenuous and inaccurate to say, I did this all on my own, and now you better you better figure out how to keep me around, right? I mean, there does have to be reciprocity there. So I think both sides owe something to each other and the best programs, everybody knows that, senses that, feels that. Uh, so it is tough to retain talent, uh, but at the same time, uh, it is tough to get jobs that will develop you so well 
that you can go to the best business schools in the world. So I think both sides have something to offer uh, and both sides need each other. Some of my friends are also scholars as well. They're still at the firm, they're still working. And then when they check in, they're fine. They're actually enjoying their jobs. Of course, the, the general scholar, uh, the ones that wasn't grown from within internally, those are much more likely to jump chip and right. run away. Right. But that's that's the risk that companies need to be willing to take. If you're building a scholarship program, this person's going to be with you for four years. How can you maximize their their value and put them in the right spot and then hope for when the day comes, when the contract expires, if they see a path within the company, they'll stay. If they don't, then kind of kind of sad, but the contract is fulfilled. Yeah, no, I mean, but that's always the way. Everybody, everybody always has the, the opportunity to leave uh, ev- on both sides, right? They can let you go and you can go. I mean, not in scholarship programs in general. I'm saying in all jobs, that's the relationship between employee and employer, right? Uh, so I think you constantly have to provide value to the company and the company has to constantly show you that they can provide value. And that's not always financial, right? It's not always everybody, especially millennials, you know what I mean? And they're not looking at, I need to make the highest possible salary. They want meaning. Uh, so we see that constantly uh, is that what we're, what people are looking for is they want meaning. They want their, they want their job to matter. They want to impact society. They want to do projects that are, that are furthering, um, you know, the advancement and evolution of Thailand. And so if you're getting to work on FinTech projects and you're getting to bring farmers from unbanked into banked and you're getting people away from, you know, uh, uh, loan sharks, that's rewarding in a way that no bonus can be, you know? And so uh, I think companies are, are increasingly doing well at that. And a, a lot of K-Bank, for example, is working on sustainable development goals uh, that were set by the United Nations. These are the kinds of things that get people uh, inspired. Uh, and if, you're, if your employees come to work inspired every day, uh, they're going to keep showing up. Okay, so we are talking a long time uh, without <laughs> getting through very many questions, but that's all right. This is a great conversation. I'm enjoying it. Um, but I think I want to get back to you. Uh, what MBAs are definitely going to want to know, and or aspiring MBAs especially, um, is your your past graduation. You're uh, a couple of years, few years removed. Um, how often do you feel that the MBA, MBA impacts your life? Uh, whether that's that your education is paying off, or you're talking about your MBA, or you're actually using some skill or knowledge you learned uh, in your career. Yeah, that's that's a great question. First of all, I would say yes. I still use whatever I, I experience. Not I, I use the, the word experience properly. Experience an MBA in my daily life. Uh, the the two years actually, for me personally, I felt it's a life changing decision to go for an MBA. Uh, right. it, it it changes your mindset on how you look into businesses. The reason is because you get to interact with with world class professor who has been through decades of companies trying to battle challenges and the way they put those challenges in a hour class and let you know how to deal with them. It, it allows you to go to work every single day and see you see a challenge and you know exactly how to handle it. Of course, it's not the same challenge that you're, the person who taught you faced, but you've got enough information that you can actually do something about it. For example, uh, I took a class on negotiations. 
And people would say, why would you take a class on negotiations? The best way to negotiate is, is to go out there and practice negotiating. <laughs> but it's all about mindset. If you go into a negotiation thinking you're definitely going to lose, you're, you're going to lose. And then for some people, it will take five rounds of bad negotiation to get there. But right. if you take a class that's run by someone who has done research on this, worked with thousands of companies on this, they'll tell you right up top, here's what you have to do when you go in, and here's how you're going to win, statistically more than other people. So for right. me, that, that was a real impact for, for classes. And for social experience, it's all about networking. You don't actually realize how important networking is because you're like 20, 21. Like <laughs> you don't know how important it is to know the right people to get things done. And right. it's not about your own social network, but it's also the network you build within the company. Right. How do you approach people and have small talk? How do you mm. bond with them? How do you build rapport? How do you make sure you're bringing value to them and they're bringing value to you without sounding as DC. That's all the things you learn in MBA, the soft skills, the hard skills. I, I don't technically think hard skills in MBA really, you know, unless you're doing banking, not really adding value that much. Maybe class on like how to do nice PowerPoint presentation or a class on how you can be a better presenter that would be useful in terms of technical skills. But really, nobody can remember the classes they took for four years, like, do you remember what you like the, all the information you got from your four year degree? I, right. I, I, but I still remember like my classes back in, in high school because I took HTML class and it's still relevant today. So it's, it's all about like, let's say it impacts you MBA as long as you choose the right thing. If you turn out and your whole experience is just a lot of partying and taking <laughs> classes that are too easy and all you need to do is show up and you don't really engage, then you're probably not going to be able to bring any value from the MBA to your life. But you're very intentional about how you want to shape and what skills you exactly know you will use in real life. And yeah, MBA would, for me, I still use it. Still impact right. uh, all aspects of it. Okay. I mean, I think uh, most people would be very excited to hear that. Definitely the students that are going through it, the parents that are probably paying for it, or the companies, right? Uh, but you want to hear that it continues to pay off. And uh, I think it's really cool that that they that it pays off in unexpected ways. Uh, you, you hear everybody doing their school research ahead of time, right? And they're like, oh, it's this class and this club and this professor and very specific things uh, that are going to help them succeed. And it turns out, to be hundreds of other things. Um, so I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And and, and, and what I, I, I really usually tell people is, you, you know, like when you research school online, you get hit by ads and there's always like this one ad that goes, you don't need to go for an expensive MBA. All you have to do is take an online course. Here are all things that an MBA will teach you, but that's not necessarily true. It's not the MBA, but it's the people behind the MBA that's teaching you. You can't really buy that unless you get a recording of someone who went for that MBA, which probably you're not going to get it at all. And it's worthwhile to sit in that class, talk to that professor, hear that one person make a comment, and then that one comment will stick with you for the rest of your life. And, and that's the value of uh, the 8 million watt. Yeah, obviously, there are the people that say, if you read these 10, 12, 
uh, 15, 20 books, whatever it is that you can get your own MBA. Uh, and is it a lot cheaper? And can you learn a lot of stuff from reading? Absolutely. I would never diminish the value of reading. But is it an MBA? No. Uh, no, of course not. So uh, it's absolutely all those experiences. And like you said, that that comment from the back of the class that gets you to think about something you've never thought about before, uh, that can change your life. Uh, and I think it's exciting to know that if you end up in a room with a lot of smart people, smart things are going to be said. You get to be a part of that conversation. Yeah. And then that organic conversation cannot be built from a book. Like a book can write about those conversations, but you're not going to be able to apply or know how to use it unless you're in that conversation. And, and I don't, and I think now people are starting to realize because when COVID hit, a lot of classes went online and not not just MBA classes, but classes in general. And you actually lose a lot of, of that experience because people, when you're doing things online, it's much harder to connect. And right. people are social, we're social animals. We don't, we don't just learn from, from voices or, or language. We learn from how you see someone react to a certain point or how the professor actually deflects someone in real time because when you're online, you, you interact with people one way. And when you're offline, when you're in person, you interact with a person in a different way. And, and I guess that line kind of blurs. And, and my point is books are great, but right. nobody can remember every single page of a book unless you're like, you have a photographic memory, but you're <laughs> right. much more likely to remember how you experience a thing. And that in itself is, is worthwhile and it pays off and it pays off constantly when you can look back and remember that one time you're sitting in a class and that professor said this and you're like, still clicks. Still, still, still that haunting sound uh, every time I do work, but it's a good sound. Oh, it's great. Um, and I mean, that's a whole, we could do a whole extra episode, another conversation, but does an online MBA prepare you for the new world, which is the online work world, right? So when you're working from mm -hmm. home, is there more of an analog between online MBA and work from home? And I don't know the answer to that uh, yet. We're still figuring it out because COVID's been crazy, but uh, but yeah, we're going to have to fit, figure out how all those ecosystems fit together. Uh, but I'm with you. I'm a fan of sitting in a room with very smart people, having those conversations. But that's also because you want real life to be like that. But real life hasn't been like that for a couple of years. So yeah, for me, it's odd because I got the offline experience, but now all my work is online. And if you ask, like, did, did the offline experience help my online work? Yeah, it right. did. But I'm not sure if like someone who did it would it right. well because right. they they before they went for an MBA, all their work life has has been offline and then right. online, and now they're back. And I think right. most most companies want people to be back. You can we can talk so much about like companies wanting people to be back, people not wanting to be back. How would that change everybody? But um, yeah, that that is interesting. That's a something we can discuss. Yeah, well, I mean, I think just a real quick, the best analog I can think of is the the exact round where people had, we do uh, mock Wharton uh, interviews, mm -hmm. right? So you do that in a room and we usually get uh, former Whartons to come in and mock mm -hmm. with our, you know, current applicants and, and try to create this very real simulation. Mm -hmm. um, and it's fantastic experience. But then 
in the middle of that, right after we did the in-person, all the interviews got switched to online. And people had a very genuine difficulty uh, you know, taking those skills because there's a lot of body language. There's a lot mm-hmm. of turning. There's a lot of uh, acknowledging people. There's a lot of nodding that matters. And suddenly in an online room, it just didn't really translate. And people found it really difficult. Uh, and so that's something, granted, it's instantaneous, but just that group interview dynamic is very different from online to offline. Um, and granted, you have no choice, but uh, seeing that live uh, was was really surprising because you'd think the skills uh, would translate easily. Uh, and, and it turns out they, they did not. Obviously, everyone still succeeded. So it was a great year. Uh, and these people were fully prepared. But to hear how different it felt uh, was really fascinating. Yeah. Wow. You, you should interview someone who, who went through, I think, that interview experience. Cause- I could actually think of three people right now because we did the we had three people in that round and two of them got on the plane before they changed it and the third didn't. So two of them got to go do it in person. The third had to do it online and they had varied. They all got in. But I mean, their level of confidence coming out of it was totally different. Uh, and so uh I mean, I could, I, I should have all three of them on. It'll be fun, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was really, it was an interesting time because you're, you're having these things happen on a, on a minute to minute, day by day basis. Um, so, okay, well, cool. Uh, I know we were supposed to trade off five for five, but you're more interesting, and so I want to ask another question. Uh, so you're a huge fan of cooking, um, and you knew that before you left, and of course, that's played a role since you graduated. But I'm curious if there was an outlet for that during your MBA. Yes, yes, yes. Um, there was an out. There is an outlet, and it was an outlet that I didn't really plan. It just grew organically. Uh, <clears throat> so just to preface, I I love cooking, but I love eating more. I love eating good food, and and I was born a picky ass child. I, <laughs> I would not eat things that I do not like. So growing up. I had a lot of difficulty like eating because I just did not want to put fat stuff in my mouth and, <laughs> and during, right. yeah and, and during MBA that that outlet became my apartment uh, in in Bangkok of course I live in a huge house it's wonderful but I don't really get to use the stove as much because my parents fear that oil is going to spill now that in, in MBA I chose a really nice apartment gas stove top of the line oh wow whole new kitchen and then right. so my outlet I just started cooking every single day every single meal because I wanted to eat good food and right. Evanston is a college town there's not a lot of food options maybe now there's a lot of options but back then there was not a lot of options they're great okay. Chinese food but the rest sucks everything <laughs> everything good was in Chicago so what I ended up doing was go to Chicago had nice food felt tired because the whole ride is like an hour or 30 minutes by train and you need to trek into the cold snow to get to a nice restaurant past right. like three homeless people. It's a scary right. experience. So for right. me, I ate, I, I went back to, to my apartment, cook, tried to replicate the food. And I realized if you try to replicate the food, it, it's expensive because you need to pay for ingredients. Right. And at the same time, I wanted to connect to people because going to MBA, people say you need to talk to people, you need to socialize, pick up some social skills, network. Right. That's, uh, that's a big thing at Kellogg. So I thought maybe if I, I tie two of this together, my need for 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 uh, money to subsidize my my cooking, 
right networking why don't i just marry the two together um of course okay. i i it was like a sequential thing i was like i'm cooking i need someone to pay for my my food bills because this is too much i my fridge is full all the time this is wasteful this is not sustainable at all and friends are like hey I see you cook a lot. How about I chip in a bit for all the ingredient costs? And it just snowballed from there and slowly nice. started to take form. People started to be more interested. So I put on a reservation system. People wanted to book more. So I put in a time slot. Now people are bidding for it. They're waiting. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so it was a whole thing. It, I, I basically started a chef's table right out of my apartment. That's amazing. While doing my MBA and people, and a lot of people are like, is Mim still doing an MBA? I, I just see her cooking. An MBA, isn't an MBA expensive? Does she want to quit to be a cook? I don't know. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still doing it. It's just a side hustle, I promise. Yeah. It's a side hustle. It's still a side hustle until today. Okay. All right. And people think I quit my job to do cooking full time, which I don't. I still love Agoda. I'm a loyal corporate employee. Right. Uh, yeah, but cooking is, is, is my outlet. I, That's great. And, yeah. And I live in Bangna, which um, for Thai people, they all know there's not much around. And so I'm, I'm stuck with the same problem again, no matter where I live. Interesting. I live, I live in a nice spot, but not a lot of food options. So I end up having to cook. And I always want a very particular type of food. So I just replicate it over and over. Yeah. And it allowed me to network. And then I can actually go through a whole deck like a powerpoint presentation uh, i actually planned that no that's amazing um it's great that you, i mean obviously not a, a, people can't usually monetize their hobbies um, and, I, and i don't know that that's the not the most exciting part about it it's just that as you point out you would have been limited if you had not right um so it became this thing where uh you needed to subsidize it uh, and it just had that added bonus of of helping you network with different people and and build a skill set and um, you know uh, and, and have that release of of getting away from classes and having your own thing. So and everybody should have their own thing, as you point out. You should have a hobby. So maybe that's uh, you know rowing out on the lake or riding a bike or whatever it is. But um, you know, cool that you're able to do cooking. That's really neat. The the cool thing about food is that and in in, in in MBA people experience as they go in they'll experience the same questions asked by their friends. Like, oh, why are you doing your MBA? Do you have an internship place where you do full time? And it's all these repetitive questions that right. you small talk and I hate it. And I don't know <laughs> how to small talk that. I don't watch sports. I can't comment about the game when I'm right. waiting in line for a class, right. but I can talk about food. Right. And yeah. I, I remember your previous question was, can you actually apply something from MBA? Like, is it, it's a, it, does it pay off? And one of the class actually paid off immediately because one of the professors said, how you bond with people, the best way for you to bond with people is through shared interest. Not about work, unless you both truly hate work and then that's a shared common interest of hating work. <laughs> but if you have shared interest and you experience that shared interest with each other, you will bond more because you get to know people from a different side. And so it fits nicely with me trying to cook and thinking, maybe this would work. It's a shared common interest. People come over and eat. They pay for the ingredient costs. We have new friends. It's a win-win situation. Yeah. And I got a Dean Service Award because of it. That's awesome. Very cool. And you got to have totally different conversations. Like you said, uh, it's inevitably, if you're sitting around and you're having a long, leisurely meal, 
I would assume the things you're chat you're talking about can evolve past that small talk that you didn't like. Food is great, so that's the bottom line. Other, <laughs> that's the bottom line. Well, um, well, I think it's cool because to say you know I love to cook, I love to eat. These are not uh, super rare things in Thailand. Thais love food in a way that most cultures do not. So um, I, I think there is a. a if you looked at the bottom of resumes where it said hobbies, you'll see food come up uh, very, very often, more often than it would in a lot of cultures. Uh, but to uh, to take it to that level is is definitely not something I've seen uh, as often. So that's that's really neat. Um, I have another one. Um, so I wanted to know what is the biggest misconception about MBAs. So there there are things that people know they know, but what do they think they know that is actually wrong? Great question. So the number one misconception would be MBAs are, are useless. Like the actual people graduating out of an MBA, there'll be like people who won't get their hands dirty doing things on a job. I think that's the biggest misconception. They think MBAs, all they want is to get a high position job, sit, be a manager and order people around. Which, which is true, people, all, but everybody <laughs> wants that. People just want to sit and tell the other people what to do. Like who, who in the entire world, their dream would be sit down and like work like an 80 hour job. I don't think anybody's dream is right. that. But that's the biggest misconception. I think MBAs are much more willing to roll down the sleeves, fix a problem, and also have that ability to take a big step back and look at look at problems from a bigger picture and bigger angle, knowing is the way I'm fixing or doing my job going to be beneficial on a larger scale for the company. So, so for me, that's the case. Uh, okay. I, I have experienced that in my job and talking to a lot of people who have graduated MBA. They're they actually know how to to fix problems better, and they are not afraid of you know. Uh, doing, doing the work doing the work like there's a i think that's a fedex or a dhl ad um one there's one where they 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 have an mba come in like a new graduate and they mock the mba saying that person won't do the job but that's not true right yeah. no i i think that's a fantastic answer um there's I think there are a lot of people that want to say, and there are all sorts of reasons, right? It could be jealousy. It could be because they took a different track. It could be because they got an MBA, somebody with an MBA came in and jumped them on the corporate ladder. Um, um, or maybe they know MBAs that are not capable or not productive, right? Yeah, it's not they, like it's a guarantee. There are not MBAs out there. A lot right. Obviously. So yeah. uh, there are samples. Uh, so there could be any number of reasons uh, for that idea. Um, but I'm with you in saying that I, uh, well, obviously, we get to choose who we work with, so that's a little <laughs> bit of self-selection. But, uh, but no, I, I, I very rarely uh, see that uh, as the case. So um, I think that's a, a fantastic thing to point out. And I think that's true, not just in Thailand. Where I, I, I think it's important to talk about what our Thai issues. Uh, but that particular thing that you just noted, I think that's a global issue. Yeah. People think MBAs are useless. Like, why, why would you, this person waste 200k usd on a school they come out and they just don't do anything right but it's not true they do that's why they're all like high-ranking people in companies no absolutely i mean i love i uh, 
just jumping on Facebook or LinkedIn every once in a while and just seeing uh, what people are doing. LinkedIn just tells you like these people keep getting promotions. Everybody is uh, crushing it. It's amazing uh, to see what people do um, because they are they are ambitious people by nature. It's what drove them to get an MBA. It's not like after their MBA, they're going to come back and, and call it a day and, and <laughs> relax for the rest of their lives. So, you know, it's just not part of their DNA. So I think that's a really good point because um, that's not something uh, I've seen either. I've never seen that stereotype uh, play out very often. I, I mean, I, I can see why that would be the stereotype back in the past, because I think before for you to go up on a corporate ladder, you might need an MBA. Like that's a requirement of sorts. And then because of that, people just pay for it, you know, because MBA, you can go to a hard school and you can go to a school that you pay and you, you get a degree. Right. Well, so I think there's the, the stitch, distinction coming in, but from personal experience and from our own both biases of people we choose to work with, all the MBAs right. I see are willing to get their hands dirty. Actually, you bring up a beautiful point. The idea that you can buy a promotion or several promotions by getting an MBA at you know any school, obviously, we don't work with people like that. I mean, everybody I know wants a, a, a top 10, top 15. I mean, these are really ambitious people. Um, and they don't want to take shortcuts because we don't take shortcuts. I mean, we are human capital consultants, right? We want to develop people. So uh, an application is a difficult, challenging process if you do it correctly, right? So the process of even getting into an MBA really pushes you. Um, and it's not just the GMAT or the TOEFL or the IELTS or whatever, but you may have to retake some classes to try to punch up your GPA. You definitely may need to do volunteerism or engage with your community. You need to uh, have be more well-rounded. You need uh, interview coaching a ton. Um, so uh, those soft skills are really important to complement the hard skills. Uh, you have to learn case study just to get through an LBS interview. Um, and there are plenty of people that have never learned case. So uh, there is a lot to learn uh, in order to get into an MBA. And if you have what it takes to do that, to earn a spot, you know, not to buy a spot, not to go in the back door. And that's kind of annoying. A lot of people associate uh, admissions consulting with, you know, going through the back door, or the side door, or whatever. Our clients go through the front door. I mean, every one of them have earned that spot. I, I will not use the phrase, I got a client into blank school because I don't do that. I can help them. I can give them the tools, give them the strategies, teach them, give them opportunities. But every one of my clients has earned a spot at that program uh, and they deserve it and they deserve their credit, which is why we don't do any marketing. We don't advertise ourselves. You know, we don't uh, go out and we don't put clients names and faces all over places because then it's like you're taking credit for their hard work and their success. And, and I think that's offensive, you know? So uh, the kind of people that are willing to work that hard to get in are going to work that hard when they get out, uh, inevitably, right? Yes, yes, I agree. And, and I think now, now that I'm thinking and we're talking, the reason there's that big misconception is because people actually don't know how hard it is to get into an MBA, the actual process required. And especially right. if you're coming in from like a non, like non-traditional background or you're Thai or you're a minority, that's a whole different ballgame. It's hard. For sure. Yeah. You need to prove yourself, even though it's like, wait, what? It, I did the exact same thing that the other person did, but I need to do a bit more of it to, to show that it's, it's, you know, it's a thing that, that people, well, it's an, it's an achievement. Um, and 
I've got my train of thought. Oh, yes, I do. And and this is a nice segue because as I went through the admissions process with you, one, one of the things I realized that I did not have and would 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 not get into schools without it is building a narrative, building a good story to tell people of how mm. how my work ethic, how my achievements, how my personal life would would play into like a, a great contributor in MBA. And and I think this is one of the things that most admissions consultants don't do. Like they would some of them would like, okay, just 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 write your essay. We'll we'll talk about it. And then right. there's there's you who who would like okay talk me through your experience who are you how can right. you build a narrative around it so so nice segue uh, question I want to ask you is why are people so why do people suck at at building their own narrative. <laughs> Why I mean, that? telling stories is hard. As you point out, it's the majority of people that are not naturally gifted storytellers. Uh, the way, you know, your grandpa can just like get you super interested in this story and he can leave, uh, you know, breadcrumbs and kind of pull you in and get you leaning forward. And some people are just gifted, right? Um, and that's amazing, but super rare. Um, I come from a business and journalism background. Uh, if I had not done both, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't do this nearly as well. I have to know the business in order to understand everybody, work with 20 different industries, um, more than that. Um, but uh, to understand what they're talking about, of course, but then have the journalism skills to ask the right probing questions, to get the right answers that will turn it into a narrative because people very rarely tell you without prompting. You know what I mean? You do have to ask the right questions uh, to get the right answers. And so you you dig and you dig and you dig and ultimately... You get it all and you say, okay, here's the here's how that would be turned into a story, right? Here's how we give it structure. Here's how we give it tension. Uh, ultimately, storytelling, actually comedy too, um, is tension and release, right? Yeah. So you've done stand-up and you know it's tension. There's that tension that you build during a joke and then you give them a punchline and they get to release. And an audience gets to laugh and it's catharsis. Uh, great storytelling does the same thing. It's uh, uh, just like movies do, right? Act one, act two, act three. It's it's tension and prop uh, obstacles and overcoming those obstacles. And a great story has to do all of the same things in a very short space. Um, so the reason I think people aren't good at it is because they weren't either you're you're born with it. That does happen. But you can learn it. It's just not a priority. Uh, and I don't think that's specific to Thailand. I mean, I think the fact that Thailand maybe is more of a, uh, you get lectured to by your, your teachers or your professors, and um, it takes a while before people are interested in what you have to say, right? So it might be university uh, before that happens. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, storytelling may not just be built into your, uh, your DNA as much. Um, I think Americans are pretty sociable and uh, storytelling is probably more important uh, and something that is rewarded, the ability to tell a good story. Uh, but but really what it comes down to is that you have to learn. You have to learn it like any other craft. I mean, people go to film school literally to learn how to tell a story. Um, yes, are you doing it with a camera? Of course, but really you're, you're just telling a story. Uh, and uh, if you're a journalist, you have to do it with much less space. And so that's why I love having a journalism background and, and 
and um, working with people that have journalism or filmmaking backgrounds. Uh, Fernando, uh, one of our uh, lead consultants, uh, made movies. He's a fantastic storyteller because he knows structure better than anyone else I know. Um, and that's uh, an amazing gift, but it, it did have to be learned and has to be honed over years and years and years. Uh, and so I think journalism is the short version of it. Uh, then you have film. Um, I think people that learned literature are probably great storytellers, but they just, they need too much space. And so translating that skill set to an essay is really difficult. And so I think they do have some trouble uh, taking their skills, which are impressive, but applying them to a, a 500 word essay, uh, which increasingly is 450 or 400 or 250. Uh, telling a story that fast is, is very difficult. Um, uh, video essays for Kellogg. Uh, did they have video essays when you applied? Yeah, they did. Okay. I mean, 60 seconds is not a long time to tell a story. So uh, that's brutal, especially when you've only had 20 seconds to prepare. So uh, the ability to quickly think about something and then speak of it eloquently, intelligently, and in with engagement uh, is very difficult. Um, but so I, I think uh, the simple answer to why are people bad storytellers is because they haven't learned to do it. It's not because you're not born with it or uh, because they, they don't care. Everyone loves a good story. It's just that you do have to learn it. It is a craft very much so. And, and it's something that we teach. Um, I think the star format that other people have used, situation, task, action, result, is probably to blame the thinking that's not a story, you know what I mean? That's just a sequence of events. So those are not the same thing. Uh, so the fact that people are told that's how you write an essay, I think is probably pretty poisonous. Uh, there, There is a better way uh, to be a storyteller. Um, and, and so we do try to teach people to do it, especially for interview, uh, but it takes years and years to become a you know, master uh, of the craft, of course. I, I definitely agree with your answers. People just don't have the priority or just haven't had practice to be a good storyteller. And right. and I think a lot of people don't really, you know, think that's the case because when you see a good storyteller, they seem so natural and they think right. you're going to be born with it. But right. sometimes it's because you practice so much and it has become second nature to you. Therefore, it's natural. It's just a Absolutely. lot of I, I still need to practice every single day. And I I know I, I, I sidestep away from it. Um, and I always have that misconception as well and thought, yeah, people are great storyteller because they're born with it until I met you. And then I met other executives in Agoda. One person stood out. She's such a good storyteller. So I asked her, so, so what's your secret? Oh, I stand in front of a mirror for two hours. Wow. There you so go. Speeches. And I practice to my daughter, and she also has an MBA, Stanford. No, there you go. Very nice. Another soft skill school. So, uh, you know, Stanford, obviously, uh, very dynamic uh, individuals. Kellogg, obviously, the number one marketing program. So you're going to school with people that tell stories for a living. I mean, you're trying to tell stories that are persuasive. I mean, uh, I mean that's ultimately what an MBA application is, right? It's a persuasive story. Uh, so yeah, all the marketers that you went to school with, maybe they were born with it, or maybe they, they honed their craft, but, uh, I think that's probably, you know, not an accurate sample, of course, uh, because as you said, most people struggle with it. Um, but to just even recognize that it's important, uh, which you did learn through the MBA application, but 
I mean, everybody has to interview. You interview for jobs. I mean, you have to tell stories. Uh, so it's something that everyone would benefit from, whether they're going to get an MBA or not. Yeah. And, and as an interviewer in, in a job, uh, people just don't tell stories well. And sometimes they take too long. Yeah. I, love, I, I love people who are succinct. Just tell me what you do. What's your impact? Yeah. What was the problem you're trying to solve? Tell it in a nice, tidy bow and, and tell me what you, why, why you're so important. And when right. people do that well, it's it becomes a great conversation, and you know they can definitely sell things, and you want them yeah. to work with you, right? Someone who will drone on for like forty minutes about something that you don't really care. You're not. No gonna one's going to listen to that exactly. Yeah. And if you don't want to listen to it, neither is anyone else. So yeah, um, in journalism, we call it right tight, uh, which just you, you've got to be shorter. Um, you know, I used to write for uh, newspapers, and you'd get like the cover, and and you'd be so excited, and they're like. I'll take this. It's going to be on the cover. It's going to run Sunday and you're just elated. And they're like, cut it in half. <laughs> and you're, <laughs> you're, you're broken hearted because you're like, but it's perfect. It's so beautiful. Why would I ever take a single word away? Everybody thinks, right? All of your words are, are, are magical and poetry. And they're like, no, of course you can tell it faster. And you think it's absolutely impossible until you do it. Um, and so Having to go through that personally, um, and this was before I became a consultant, uh, having to go through that and seeing that you really can cut it in half and be really impactful, if not more impactful, because people got the message more quickly, people finished the article instead of you know giving up, uh, you, you do have more of an impact and you're doing it with less space and it's, uh, it's an absolute skill, but uh, I admit fully that it was hard to learn. Uh, because you do love a, a full story, but you're really not going to get that time from people all the time, whether that's an MBA application or an interview uh, like you're you're talking about, but people are in a hurry. Uh, so like you said, get to the point, put a bow on it, and close. All right. I have one more question if you have a few more minutes. Are we yes, good? I do. I do. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. I am always curious about this because one of the main things people say to me is, I want an MBA because I want to work abroad, right? That's the goal. Um, and the, people are always asking about H-1Bs and, and how long can I stay and what's the pipeline to, to tech. Uh, but kind of like some people just want a vacation. Some people just want a job abroad. They don't know what job or what industry. They don't really care, right? Um, but you got uh, a world-class MBA, obviously a very global person that could have worked abroad. What made you want to come back to Thailand immediately? Um, and in retrospect, do you feel like that was the right choice? That is a very tough question because if you ask that question, two months after my MBA, my answer would be different. A year after my MBA, that will also be a bit different. Two years after my MBA, the answer will also be different. What's the evolution? The evolution. So at first, I was one of those people who would love to work abroad for a year or two and come back to Thailand with like a big salary. And then okay. companies to just like, hey, can you match that so that <laughs> I can take that pay? That that was one thing. Um, and, and the reason I didn't do because I couldn't find a company I want to work for. Mm. Of course, there's Google, there's Facebook. Of course, they didn't accept me. Uh, there's start interesting startups as well, but it's not the startups I want to be at yet. Like I don't see myself progressing in right. those firms, and they're not willing to sponsor. And mm. it's quite tough because during the time I did my MBA, the MBA did, did not have a STEM designation. So you can't uh -huh. really, 
you know, use a, we have one year OPT, OTP, OPT, one year right. OPT, but with a STEM degree, you get three years. So companies are much more willing to take you on because they know you're not going to just like disappear after a year due to some H1B lottery issue. Um, right. and, and all schools are like that now. They offer a three-year, like a STEM degree for international. And the folks tend to stay in the U.S. for three years, try to apply for H1B, all that, great. But for me, it was one, that didn't find a job that I liked to. I didn't get the jobs that I wanted to get. And then, yeah, those are two things. And I decided to look back home. And um, and then I saw Agoda, and it was the only company I applied for. Wow. Bad, bad idea. Never go for just one option. Apply to one school. Don't do that. Yeah. Just, just don't. Just don't go for one school. I got lucky. I, I got I got I got offered and I joined right. Agoda. And um, it was great because one, I get to be in Thailand, get to, to talk, get get to see all my good friends who have moved back, and uh, it was great. But of course, I saw people who were working, you know, in in jobs in the U.S. It it looks great until COVID hit, mm. and I was like, wow, if COVID hit, I'll be on the first plane back home. I wouldn't care about the job. because <laughs> yeah. the U.S. healthcare system sucks. So for right. me, it was six months after my MBA, I was like, yeah, I'm so happy I applied. Uh, right. I am working in Rodam in Thailand. It's safer here. If I right. got I know I have a hospital. I don't have to wait like 24 hours or an ER. And then COVID right. got worse. Right. Yeah. And, 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 uh, but yeah. And now for me, I think it, it, it was the right choice. Like 100%. Good. I was lucky. I didn't right. intend it for the first place, but now I'm in Thailand. I got the space. To cook, I got <laughs> to be with my friends. I got to be in Thailand. The food is great. Like one thing I realized was that, man, if I'm stuck in the U.S. with COVID, I would totally miss Thai food. And if if I were to be stuck somewhere indoors, I'd rather right. be eating Thai food than you know pizza all the time. You right. know pizza uh, delivery actually got like shot up like two three hundred percent because which was is crazy because it was already high yeah <laughs> yeah what thought like um healthy food would be the trend you know because there's, there's like i think it was sweet greens or like jeff salad that was like booming pre-covid right. and people thought they're going to strive during covid because of delivery turns out people only eat healthy when they have to walk past a healthy food place and they would order and then right. go back to work. But if they're at home, they don't in their pajamas. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh. No, I think uh, that's really interesting just to thinking about the timing of it all and, and where you want to be for lockdown and uh, do you want that to be home and do you want uh, but also you'd said uh, it was really interesting just to watch which countries got hit in what order, you know what I mean? So at first Thailand was doing so well and the US was so bad and then of course, the U.S. got better and got the vaccine first, and then Thailand got hit, and then, uh, then you know, plateau. Yeah. You have this plateau of the vaccine in the states, and so, and then uh, Europe is is really different, just from uh, Western to Central to Eastern, and so, I think when you uh, decide where you want to live, obviously you can't have planned a pandemic uh, in place. Yeah. Um, but the ultimate takeaway is just to remember the value of home. Uh, for you, it was healthcare, it was food, it was friends, it was family, but uh, just to understand your priorities. Um, and everybody has different priorities. So maybe somebody else would have been happy locked down in London or locked down in New York or locked down wherever. But uh, 
but it, I think it ultimately does come down to what are your priorities? Is it that big salary? Do you just want to do it for a couple of years? Is it a resume builder? It is, right? Uh, but uh, you know, the fact that you were looking for more for match and you'd rather work for a good company at home, uh, you know, rather than a bad fit abroad, um, you know, says a lot about what your priorities are um, and and what your opportunities are as well. Of course, um, going to Kellogg gives you a, a wider range of opportunities. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And and if I if I look back and if I could tell myself like two years down the line, I would totally tell, like just come back to Thailand. Because yeah. it's going to be much better. Um, I did work in the states as well during my internship because I okay. at least want my experiences to be in the states for a bit. And I get I got to work for a startup. Uh, cool. it, it was a great experience in Chicago. It was during the summer. So the weather was nice. And I was like, wow, I never knew like the Midwest was this great. Maybe right. I need to stay here. But what I found was that once you're doing your internship and you're going to work and you're coming back to your apartment, it's very difficult to connect with other people who are also, yeah. you know, of course, imagine moving your ass all the way from Thailand to live in the States. And now you're working there and your social life is as important but all your friends are say going to the bay area or they're going right. to i don't know new york and if those two places those two cities are not what you like to be at then yeah. it's going to be really hard and then a lot of people i think don't really realize that because they've never lived in those spots and, mm. and for me you're right my priority was to be in a good place with good people and it's okay to to you know work and and Nagoya is not a bad company it's a great company to work at it's actually very international very mm. surprising I, right it's so diverse like my my boss is french my colleagues are italian korean and, it, and you actually don't get that experience in the u.s in the u.s it's right probably 99 percent americans right no that's we true have to be a minority so you can there. actually come home and still have more of a multicultural experience than you would abroad. Yeah. Yes. And so it depends on place to place. But if, if say, I was a completely different person and my love is for great insure tech, then I would right. tell that, that person to work in the States because oh, that right. opportunity in Thailand or in Asia is not there yet. You right. can come back, but you'll be the country manager that you've got to run the show and you've right. got to act. Are you ready to run that show or right. you'd rather learn from somewhere else? So it right. really depends on, on what you want, the industry that you'd like. If it exists back at right. home, if it does, are you willing to take that on? If you're not, it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of things to think about. Yeah. And just that's, that level of self-reflection, I think, is, is ultra important. And that's something you can get so focused on getting into the MBA because you just know you're supposed to get it that you forget to ask yourself all those important questions. Um, and hopefully you have people around you that will help you, whether that's alumni or friends or family or, or a great consultant, because you really do have a lot to consider um, and mm -hmm. to uh, just ask yourself the tough questions, ask yourself the right questions, and then know that whatever your answer is, uh, at least you're making the right decision for you. Because there is no such thing as like the right decision for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, you figured out what worked for you. And I think that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, I got really lucky. Like I got really lucky. Like no, like to your point, nobody can plan a pandemic. 
and what would your choice be like? Like imagine like you told someone who got into the class of 2020 and like, hey, you're, there's going to be a pandemic. You still really want to go? Right. Oh, no, yeah. and people had to decide that. I mean, people had to decide, do I want to defer? Do I want to spend this kind of money? Are classes going to be online or are they going to be in class? Can I live, live on campus? Are there still going to be trips? They're going to be study abroad. These are, I mean, living through that and trying to help people navigate that was brutal. Um, but again, it was, it was the same thing you're describing. You, everyone had to ask themselves, what is your priority? What is most important to you? So maybe you do go right now and just because that's what you wanted. Maybe you wait a year because that's fine. Some schools allowed you to defer for two years. Maybe that's the answer. Or maybe you don't go. Um, obviously, I didn't. I don't know anybody that did that, but I'm sure there are people that, that, that did. Uh, but it was a very personal decision in a really difficult environment, but it only came through asking those tough questions and figuring out what was important to you. Well, Min, thank you so much for that. I mean, this was an hour and a half. I did not know how long this would take, but um, but I've loved it. This is a fantastic conversation. I really, I've known you forever, and these are all things I didn't know about you. So, um, so I'm excited to know it, and I think uh, other people that are considering MBAs uh, or even uh, in their MBAs already uh, will really benefit uh, from your experience and your insights. Uh, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. It's such a great conversation to have and, and just learn from your perspective. Oh, I appreciate uh, the your very genuine questions, very insightful questions, uh, asking me things that uh, maybe I haven't thought about or people haven't asked before. So uh, these are, I forget that I've been doing this for 17 years. Uh, so uh, there is a lot there. Um, so uh, I appreciate you asking those questions because it's exciting to get to to think about that again and to put it down in a way that may help people that uh, that we normally wouldn't reach because obviously we can't work with everybody so um you know a podcast can reach a lot more people so so thank you for uh for asking the questions and and just having that really uh insightful conversation yeah thank you thank you That's all right happening. man take care we'll do it again soon okay take care all right all right bye-bye all right bye